Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Claire Sorrell, and I'm the president of the Friends of the Knox County Public Library. Welcome to Book Sandwiched In. We're honored today to welcome Pastor Chris Battle from Tabernacle Baptist Church, an adjunct professor at several colleges in the area, and also Chris Woodhull, former Knoxville City Councilman and now a resident of Chattanooga, who serves as Director of Creative Development for the Soul Care Project there. Both Chris's are outstanding community leaders, and we are proud to welcome them here today. They will be talking about the landmark book, Between the World and Me, by Ta Nahisi Coates. Thank you. Hey, thank you very much. Um, this was built as a conversation, a discussion, right? Is yes, that what sir. you saw on the poster? That's what I saw on the poster. Um, how many people have read the book? Oh, nice. How many people understood the book? Okay. That's fair. That's fair. We, we were talking before we came up here this about an hour ago, and, uh, and I was saying, man, I don't know how to approach this. To me, this is an important book. Um, I don't want to just come up here and tell you what it's about because actually it's a, it's a book that's, that you need to kind of, you need to read, you need to wrestle with, you need to grapple with. It's not a piece of information. If you want great information, then you could read this book. And that would be The, uh, the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, Mass Incarceration, The Age of Colorblindness. But there's something, there's something profoundly poetic about Ta-Nehisi Coates' book. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's um, very much in the, in the tradition of James Baldwin, uh, a, a kind of literary cascade of fire. And uh, it opens up with a uh, very famous poem by, by Richard Wright called Between the World and Me. And it's where the, uh, the poet, uh, a gentleman, encounters the ruin of a lynching that also was a, uh, the, the victim was, was burned. And then it's also... Uh, another poem by Sonia Sanchez, it, which was a, a kind of eulogy for toward Malcolm X, El Hajj Malik El Shabazz. And the opening of the book, it's very clear that it's an epistolary approach. It's a letter written to his son describing being on a program in D.C. And the host is basically lamenting, perhaps, to Coates, well, don't you think things have improved Specifically, the host wished to know why I felt that white America's progress, or rather the progress of those Americans who believe that they are white, was built on looting and violence. It's just an interesting opening because basically, the, once again, a, a white person is, is engaging a, a, a black liter, a scholar and basically saying, well, you know, you, you, seem to be, you seem to be hanging on on this idea that this country was founded on looting and violence. So, so, so why? And Coates says, I, I felt an old and indi- an indistinct sadness well up in me. The answer to this question is the record of the believers themselves. The answer is American history. So he's essentially going, go to your history. Um, there's nothing extreme in this statement. Americans deify democracy in a way that allows for a dim awareness that they have from time to time stood in defiance of their God. But democracy is, for, is a forgiving God, and America's heresies, torture, theft, enslavement, are so common among individuals and nations that none can declare themselves immune. He makes this incredible statement, race is the child of racism, not the father. 
And then toward the end, well, at one point, the, the host showed that photograph of the, the young black boy hugging the police officer. You remember that? And, uh, and Coates says, I realized then why I was sad. When the journalist asked me about my body, it was like she was asking me to awaken from her most gorgeous dream. I have seen that dream all my life. It is perfect houses with nice lawns. It is Memorial Day cookouts, block associations and driveways. The dream is tree houses and the Cub Scouts. The dream smells like peppermint but tastes like strawberry shortcake. And for so long, I have wanted to escape into the dream, to fold my country over my head like a blanket. But this has never been an option because the dream rests on our backs, the bedding made from our bodies. And knowing this, knowing that the dream persists by warring with the known world, I was sad for the host. I was sad for all those families. I was sad for my country. But above all, in this moment, I was sad for you, his son, who he is talking to. He mentions that he is sad for the kind of specious hope that uh, white people persist in. And... uh, my experience with the book was uh, similar to my experience with some of Baldwin's writing and some of James Cone's, especially black power and black theology. As a white person, just having to be confronted with something I didn't understand. It's almost like the alcoholic who doesn't understand the compulsion. Um, it's not a piece of, of information. It's, it's more of an awakening. So that was, uh, those are my initial impressions. How about you? I w- Actually, I'd like to ask a question. A lot of hands went up that read the book, but the second question was how many understood it? And I think one and a half hands, yeah, one hand's fluctuating between yes and no. I kind of want to know why you didn't understand it. What didn't you get? Yes. Well, most fundamentally, I'll never understand the black experience because I'm white-skinned. So my interpretation of the book is constrained in that way. Okay. But, but let me ask you this. I mean, to some extent, he's engaging. Uh, it, I mean, he is talking from a, a black point of view. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a black man in a black body. But he, he's also confronting you and me as dreamers, that we somehow insist upon re-narrating our uh, history, a false history in our heads. What, what, were you, what were your thoughts about that? That wasn't unfamiliar to me. Yeah. Um, my family tradition and my faith tradition as a Jewish person yeah. is about oppression and slavery and liberation of all people. Right. So that part w- I did understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as far as the experience of living in the body of a person of color and a male body of a person of color, uh, as I said, that's, that's not something I'll ever experience. After I read Between the World and Me, I went and read his previous book, his memoir of growing up. And that, I think, got me a little closer to understanding the yeah. experience, but certainly not understanding it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, um, <clears throat> it, the book resonated with me. I grew up in the suburbs of Cincinnati. I lived in an all-black community, but went to an all-white school system. And so I was stuck between two worlds, if you would. Um, it was safe for me to go home. I didn't mind going to the park. I didn't have to fear, except Ronnie Horde, because he used to always beat me up. <laughs> but his experience of, of violence, even amongst the, his own community, um, 
something I've never experienced, but I understood. It, it resonated with, with me. And that fear of the gangs, that fear of not being comfortable around white people is something that I, under, I, un, I understand. I don't think people understand the effect that racism has had not only on African Americans, but on white America as well. You know, and it is, it is pervasive. Um, and that's, that's, what it was, that's what was resonating with me. Well, how did you, know? you take his comment in the book, people who believe themselves to be white? <laughs> how did you take that? This whole sense that there's this thing called white privilege. Right. And just because of the color of your skin, that you have this sense that of superiority, that you're better, that you look at me as an object. Let me share experience with you <clears throat> that I've had. I went back home and um, was back home watching a football game in my old high school, my alma mater, where I was voted most popular. <laughs> this lady came around, and we were, it was a hot, it was a hot, blistering day. Lady comes around, she's passing out these pamphlets. We're sitting up under this a little shade up under the stadium, and she gave everybody a pamphlet but me. Then we went up to the stands. We're sitting in the stands. She was passing out the pamphlets in the stands. She gave everybody in the row one but me. Then my nephew came up, who she happened to know, and he sat next to me. Then I finally got a pamphlet. But that's been my experience my whole life. It's almost like we were talking about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, where we feel like we're not visible. You don't see me. You can do whatever you want to do with me. You can say whatever you want to say to me. And I find it interesting. I've only lived here in Tennessee eight years. And I find it interesting that many of the conversations I've had with particularly older um, um, white people, at some point in the conversation, always have to bring up the fact that they know a black person. Why do you think that is? I haven't quite, I was hoping y'all could tell. <laughs> but, but it's almost like this sense that... It's a kind of deflecting device yeah. to use. Yeah. We, we, uh, you do it too? We, we feel, no, not anymore. <laughs> well, because I know you. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think it, I mean it goes it goes back to this this idea of of we believe ourselves to be white. We learn that we're white. Yeah. And what comes with that is is a is a is a kind of and and as Coates would say to be white depends upon the abasement of black. Um, of course, no one is going to and and you learn it in a way that you don't the curriculum's not laid out there for you like all right look this is how it works. It, it's suggested almost in every corner. And so you pick it up, just like you pick up the culture of the streets. You pick up the culture of, of, of white privilege, of whiteness. And the same, only, only Coates is also saying, but, be, but being black is visceral. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not just an idea. They will break your body. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lived experience that will hurt you. That, that idea, there was one statement in the book where he said... I had to be violent enough to survive and, mm-hmm. and not violent enough to survive. to survive, depending on where I'm at. Yeah. Anybody else want to jump into this? Oh, yes. Um, 
I was going to say I agree with you as well. I am not from here. I am from Illinois, an old town in Illinois where I was spoiled to death. I am spoiled to this day by my mother sometimes. But Is your mom we, here? Yes, my mom yeah, is here. Okay. <laughs> right. uh, so you did all the spoiling. Yeah. And, and what is your name, son? Uh, my name is Larry. Sir. Larry, all right. Yes. Go ahead. And when we moved here, pretty much like I, I have changed over the years. I moved here when I turned nine years old. I am now 16, so I have lived here for about seven years already. And I, I have changed over those years pretty much what you were saying, where we have to live. And I agree with him in the book. Sometimes you have to live in fear to survive. Yeah. What were some of your impressions of the book? I was amazed. Well, when we first, well, me and my partner first read the book, when we first read about the dream, we didn't understand. We, we didn't know what he meant by that whatsoever. Right. But when we started getting further and further into the book, we started to understand the dream. It's that perfect world that you've always wanted to live in. It's that house with the white picket fence in the front with two, one or two kids and that one most person you want to live your life with in that one house for the rest of your life, pretty much. Yeah. That's what I have pretty much understand what he's meant by the dream. Nice, nice. Thank you so much. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. It's very interesting. Um, I'm neither black nor white, and I got to Tennessee a little over three decades ago. Uh, I'm from India, and I experienced multitudes of, I don't know if I want to call them discriminations, but just an understanding of me. Being from India back in the early 80s, I was considered a towel head. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm a medical doctor by profession. That changed as people got to know that. And then 30 years later, uh, I don't have to be a doctor, and I'm treated differently. Because today the image of an Indian is someone who is a brainiac. So I don't have to be a medical doctor, and I'm treated better than I was back then. But it's a prejudice just the same. It's a prejudice to say, you're from India, you're a brainiac. I think a lot of people look at me, you know, and they see my long flowing locks. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think there's a fear that comes along with it, you know. And I'm the nicest guy you'll ever meet. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a matter of taste. Yeah. But <laughs> Thank you. Are, are there any, uh, any, any white brothers or sisters that are willing to get up there and Tell us how confused you were by the book or liked the book or... All right. Hey, uh, so I am a, a pretty new public school teacher. Uh, this is my first year on my own uh, working in salary. Um, and I was really knocked on my back by, by what he says about public school systems, especially in predominantly black communities. I teach at Fulton High School, which is about 50-50, but tends to be majority black. Um, And he makes this amazing statement that I'll read. Um, It's on 25. He says, If the street shackled my right leg, the school shackled my left. Fail to comprehend the streets and you gave up your body now, but fail to comprehend the schools and you gave up your body later. Uh, I suffered at the hands of both, but I resent the schools more. Wow. He goes on to talk about how the types of schools he attended in Baltimore 
were less about teaching him life skills and more about teaching him compliance. Yeah. Um, and, and and learning the the codified language of whiteness in some way. Mm. Uh, and you guys have kind of been in the public sphere of Knoxville for a lot longer than I have, so I'm wondering if you feel like uh, Coates' take on schooling um, for predominantly black communities is you know is true in in our community. Yeah. Let me say this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I graduated in 1979 mm-hmm. um, from high school. I know I don't look that old, but um, <laughs> I turned 55 Monday. Um, as I said, I went to an all-white school system. Yeah. I did not know the effect that that school system had on me till I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, which is African-American, all-male. Mm-hmm. And my nickname... In, high, in college, my freshman year, was white boy. Mm-hmm. Let that resonate just for a moment. It was white boy. Mm-hmm. That's what they called me. Because I had this mentality, th- thought process, that wasn't conducive to our culture. Mm-hmm. That soon changed. But I think what happens in our school systems particularly our public school systems, is that it does not encourage our culture. Yeah. It doesn't because it's not coming from our perspective. Mm-hmm. And so we're going we're always we're going to always have that issue until something changes. Mm-hmm. What, what were you knocked back about? Just the statement itself, or the, or how it 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 seemed to articulate clearly something you didn't understand in your own classroom? Yeah, a little bit of both, I think, and, and kind of making me. Consider the implication that, that I could be part of that problem, you know, as a, as a white teacher at a school that, whose administration is majority white, but whose student population is majority black. You know, am I in some way trying to assimilate or am I expected to assimilate uh, culturally my student body? So it's challenging to know. It is. To yeah. even, even though you're, and you seem like a real kind, good-hearted person, mm-hmm. even though you have great intentions, you could actually be uh, delivering Absolutely. something that hurts. Yeah. Do you have any ideas about how you, how you, how you want? I don't know. I mean, I try to be as subversive as I can, too. but uh, yeah, I, 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 I wonder. You know, perception is everything, and so no matter what my intentions are, and Coach says like intentions really don't matter. It's a physical, visceral experience. Like if the student's perception is that they're being assimilated, it really doesn't matter what I do or what other teachers do. I do have an idea. Yeah. Larry can help you. Larry is one of my students. Okay. (laughs) You need to hire him as a consultant. All right? All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. What what is the significance of of an all-black college? Wow. And and are there there clues there that can be brought into public? HBCUs graduate more... Um, African-Americans, or they go on to further degrees, graduate degrees, than the, those that go to white institutions. There is this sense of oneness and community and not <laughs> sense that I don't have to walk with my head down. I can. I mean, Coates talk, calls yeah. Howard Mecca. Well, he didn't know about Yeah, he didn't know about Morehouse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there, there was just this 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 brotherhood and I got this sense of I'm somebody, I'm important um, I'm significant 
Um, I'm not this inferior guy. And it wasn't that folks were looking down on me. I, again, I was voted most popular. Now I wonder why sometimes. You know, I was also the president of my class. I mean, I was the guy. You know, nothing happened without Chris Battle, that I, I think. But at the same time, I had become like Borg. You know, I had assimilated. You know, there was, we were all one to the point where even my, my black friends began to disassociate with me at times. You know, even though I was defending them in the student council meetings and making sure they didn't have a slave day at, at our high school, you know. Um, but that's, let, me, let me give you an example. They were talking about busing at one point to our school. And one of my friends, we played, we played football together since we were little types. I'll never forget, he was standing there just like Chris is sitting next to me now. He said, I don't want them niggers here. Well, what about me? And this was the key, he said. He said, oh, but Chris, I know you. Yeah. That was almost 40 years ago. But that's, that's, I think it's the same problem that we have today. We don't know each other. And to a certain point, I don't think we want to know each other. Because we might find out something that scares us to death, that we're the same. Or that we're the same and have different experiences. But ultimately, there, there is a similarity. In our yeah. Well, see, I don't think, I don't think racism, is, racism is built on this thing that we're not the same, that you're less. Right. Our own constitution says I'm three-fifths of a person. Well, one of the things that Coates does in the book is he, he interrogates language. He interrogates the word people. Mm-hmm. That, that all people are, are created equal, only in the mind of a white person, you have to understand what they mean by people. And if you get that, then they've been consistent. Yeah. Uh, he interrogates the, 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 use, the word white, the word black. Anybody else want to jump in? What I would really like to, for you to comment, comment on, Reverend Battle, is how you and others like you. And there's, there's a few po- folks in this room from the East Knoxville neighborhood. How you can, can work and use people like me and other people in this room to change the, the nature of where you live and change the nature of the schools that your residents go to. Uh, and I think that's really important because it's it's going to it's going to take a lot of effort to straighten out things and make uh, a lot of changes in East Knoxville that need to be made. Uh, it's it needs money, it needs jobs, it needs good schools, it needs help. Number one, I think we need to quit making assumptions that all black folks live in East Knoxville. Because um, I think just the assumptions say a whole lot about how we feel about each other. 
Um, I'm tempted to give you a Malcolm X answer. When the little white girl came to Malcolm and said, what can I do? And he said, nothing. Because there are some things that we have to be freed to do for ourselves. My personal opinion is that the genius of racism, the genius of it, is that it makes the oppressed believe they can do nothing apart from the oppressor. That's the genius of it. That I can't do anything unless master says it's okay. We still suffer from that in our community today. To a very large extent. And we have to be free to deal with that problem. It's not going to take incarceration. It's going to, it is going to take some laws that are fair. It's not going to take policing. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. Ultimately, I believe it's, me, it's, going, it's only going to take Jesus and the transformation of people's hearts. But just giving us money doesn't help us. We have to create. We've lost this whole sense of community. And what it means to be a brother. What it means to watch out for each other. I remember the days where, you know, if I did something at the playground, I got a whipping at the playground. Then I got home and mama already knew about it and got a whipping from mama. Then she, when daddy got home, she'd tell daddy get a whipping from daddy. And, and if grandmama happened to be around, get a whipping from her too. <laughs> you know, but we have lost that. We've lost that sense. Um, and I don't know. Um, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I really have an answer as to what you can do except hear us, see us, don't make assumptions about us, partner with us, but not on a paternalistic basis. Don't gentrify us. <laughs> Should I repeat that part? Yeah. Yeah, don't gentrify us. Um, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Um, I, I think I'm headed toward an answer. I just don't know if I made it yet, if I can get there. No, I, think, I think you said something really interesting um, uh, on, on being uh, NPR interview with Krista Tippett. She interviewed uh, Michelle Alexander, um, and she made an interesting comment. She said, I no, longer, I no longer analyze racial progress based on whether white people understand something. Um, I, 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 <laughs> I base it off of, of our own empowerment, like the success of Larry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're the one that got up there, and, and you said some very wise things. So, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot on you. Um, are you a writer? No. No? Uh-oh. Is that your mother up here now? Yes. Okay. I'm his mother. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, like you said, we're from Illinois, and I grew up in a community where it was all kinds of racist there. And I didn't face racism until I came to Knoxville. 
uh, actually, because, you know, I, I went to school where it was whites, blacks, Mexicans, Japanese, all kinds of races. Maybe my mama blinded me to racism, but I, like I said, I didn't face it until I came to Knoxville. I mean, then start people started asking me, "Where are you from? What race are you?" And I'm looking at people like, "Why do I constantly get people asking me this question?" And I tried to shield my son from it too, but he got here and he started getting the same questions, and he started coming to me asking me questions too. Mom, why are people asking me this? I'm like, I don't know, baby. You know, my mama shielded me and I shielded you, so now we got to open our eyes and realize what's really going on. But in a way, sometimes I walk out my door and I'm scared. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm scared because it's too many people fighting now, you know. And I know it's just not in Knoxville and it's other places, but I've never been so close to it is what it is, you know, and it just scares me. Do you, do you have an answer to that white brother that came up before about what do white people do? How would you respond to that? I really can't really say about that. That's fair. Um, I've experienced that too. You know, when you said it, I just started kind of reminiscing real quick. I've lived in Ohio, Kentucky, um, Atlanta, Georgia, Hackensack, New Jersey, here. And I don't know if I've experienced it in all those other places as much as I have I've here. Yeah. And it's not so much, it's, it's the fact that, and maybe it's going to go back with my, my original statement, it's almost like in conversation people want to make, let me know that I am black. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the weirdest thing, you know. I mean, I've been called the N-word a few times, you know, but um, it's like at some point they have to say, I got this black friend. Okay, now you know I'm black. You know, I had a lady at Shoney's once, you know, and I guess she, her assumption was that all black people are poor. Um, we're sitting there eating at Shoney's at the bar, you know, smorgasbord. We're eating. This lady comes up to us. She says, you know, we always leave food for the less fortunate behind. <laughs> Just go. <laughs> you know, I mean, but it's that it's those type of encounters that that I have a, a whole lot of, you know, that is just disturbing. Like, you know, why can't I just be Chris? You know, why do you have to see my my color? You know, I want you to see my color. I want you to recognize that I am, but not, I'm, I'm not inferior. I'm not this poor, pitiful person that's inferior to you that you have to show me your superiority. I'm a man. You're a man. We're human. Why can't we accept that? Go ahead. I, uh, I have three things. Tony, he, uh, Tony sees being uh, atheist. I want to know, like, how do you respond to that, what he's saying in the book as well? Um, it, that part saddens me because I think that hope is bound up in one's understanding of God. I, ha I do have hope that this situation could be made better and be made right. I don't, think, I, didn't, I don't feel that hope in him. I don't read that in him, that this, this is going to be a constant. Um, 
I, I, I read hope in him. Yeah, yeah but I, I, don't mean, see, I don't see the hope in the sense that anytime soon he's going to, that this racism thing is going to be wiped out. Right. In that sense. How did he phrase it? That the world was created by an atheist god or something yes. on that order? Yes. There, yeah. You know, so we make up our rules and our. I'm not saying be, don't be concerned with, with what you're concerned about, but he's a poet also. You know, and there's a, there's a dimension of his writing that, I mean, he's actually doing something that's deeply Christian, uh, and that is telling the truth, whether you want to hear it or not. You know? And nobody's going to believe the. Except the good news, if you're not going to be real about the bad news, um, and to some extent, he's he's very much a part of that. Does that does that ring true to you? Yes, it does. Yeah. Now, my second thing, when you were saying your friends called you white boy, well, I'm in high school now. My friends they call me the whitest black boy they know, because I wasn't raised so like to sag my pants everywhere and like ooh I'm a smoke weed or anything like that. I was never raised that way. See, that's that's therein is the problem. We're not defined by how we wear our pants. We're not, we shouldn't be defined because we, we, we articulate our words. We're not this, I think that's, that's what racism does, put you in this little box and you have to act like this. You're, so now you're a white Negro. That's part of the, that's the issue, that's the problem. That we say, you're not black, and we do it in our own community. You're not black unless you do A, B, and C. That, that, that something is wrong with that because we're not this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's not just one type of us. Monolith? There you go. That's it. Yeah. We're not this monolith that, you know, all black people are like this. And that's what Coach talks about when yeah. we went to Howard, the diversity yeah. of black. That's right. You know, and, and you know, when, we, when you watch us on TV, you know, we're all mad and mean. We're all fighting when we're just talked about on the radio, on, on, in the newspaper. We're shooting up. But that, that, that isn't all of us. We can't let other people define us. You know? I would engage it. You know, when people say this, what, what, what do you mean? Black for us is not just a color. It's an attitude. It's, a, it's, an, it's an approach to life. Commitment. It's a commitment. It's an outlook. It's a perspective. You know, don't fear asking those questions. You know, we, we need to ponder. We need to dig into that. We need to need to struggle with it, you know. But I think that, that when we say black, we mean a whole lot of things. Larry, three. <laughs> oh, okay, my third thing. When he says, when he's talking like walking the streets of Baltimore, of how uh, people would uh, have, like, big, wear big pants, sagging their pants, playing loud music in the boom boxes. And as soon as he leaves that, he says, wow, it's a whole different world here. And I feel the same way. When I moved here, I felt like, wow, it's different. And I had to live in fear most of the time, also living in a different world yeah. from other people, the whole white picket fence and everything. Yeah. You, you have a lot of great thoughts. You need to record those thoughts. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm here. Part, I mean, he answered that question. Coates answered that question for himself by writing this book. I think that you're asking a very personal question about the inquiry that you're, that you're involved in. So I don't even think it's right for us to answer that question. I think, I think you need to engage it. Uh, you're very thoughtful. Uh, so, man, start writing, all right? <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to write a book ever. Okay. All right, Larry, all right. go sit down. <laughs>
Yes. Hi. Hello. I'm um, Larry's partner, and we've been reading the book, and he, like, mentions fear. How does fear, like, influence the black community? Because, like, in the book he says that music is one thing, and he says the way they act and the way they dress and stuff like that is a part of fear. How music is... I couldn't hear the part about he music. He says that music shows, like, fear. That music... Ex- that fear is expressed in the music? Yes. I mean, I think on some level he, he's describing how when you live in a certain kind of uh, dangerous environment, you absorb stuff. Human beings just absorb things. My understanding of the black community's experience is almost uh, parallel to some of the things I've learned about people who have lived in abusive homes and the kind of, and the kind of things that they've taken on in their heart. And they start to try to negotiate and, and, and manage that fear that's just in there. Mm-hmm. They're not even sure how to, how to do it, how to work with it. it. And so you can even detect it sometimes in the art of music, in the art of di- this and that. Yeah. I, I think we, you can hear that fear in the rebellion of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and I think, y'all are asking some hard questions. No, this, <laughs> yeah. um, but the fear, I think the fear is, is, is real, you know, in our community, when you go to you know, housing projects or in the communities, there's bars on windows, and they're not trying to keep white folk out. You know, but there is a, there's a bad element that we have. I mean, and, well, y'all got them too. You know, y'all just, just nobody talks about them. <laughs> but, but, you know. But, they're running for president. Yeah, they're running for president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think... He says that, that, you know, fear really motivated him, you know, to, to find that dream. But I think the fear is, is that even though there is that dream, he'll never be able to achieve it. Um, and so there's, there's fears on a whole lot of different levels. Um, I fear for my kids, you know. That's probably why I still let them stay in my house. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Thank you. Uh, I always think about the native people who were here. I try to start from that vantage point to, to the best that I can because the name of our state is a Native American name. Yet the genocide that was perpetuated against the Native Americans is almost never discussed, never talked about. It's a history as if we don't want to really dig within ourselves. Uh, the question that was asked earlier is what can... And I use the term European-American. I stopped using the term white a long time ago, just like I stopped using the term black pretty much. The question was, what can be done? And in Islam, I'm a Muslim. In Islam, it said when the creator creates a thing, the creator says, kum fa kum, be and you be. Most people say be and you are. I think what we need to do is be, just be. Because with that in mind, that we work on ourselves. We're always trying to correct somebody else. Mm. And in correcting someone else, we overlook the major problem. The major problem is me. Mm. You know, do you feel safe around me? When someone says something about you, do I correct them in their presence and not feel bad about it? It also says in Islam that if your responsibility is to correct things. That if you see things, something incorrect, you stop it with your hand. If you can't stop it with your hand, you stop it with your mouth. 
And the least amount of faith is to stop it in your heart. And that's what we're working on. We're just stopping things in our heart. We're in the presence of city council and money is going to various places in the community. We just got through talking about the inner city. We gave reference to East Knoxville, but it's a total inner city. We'll sit at that city council meeting or we'll vote on things that we know are wrong and we won't say anything about it. So we're trying to figure out how we're going to correct it. We have to correct ourselves. From this day on, when you leave this meeting, when you hear somebody say the word nigger, when you say the word hunky, the word cracker, whatever it may be, wet back, whatever it may be, you correct that person at that time. And don't wait and sit until you get to your church group or your Jewish group or your Muslim group or whatever it may be to try to organize around how we're going to change things. We're going to change things when we change what's in our heart. And we correct it at that time. I'm going to repeat it again because I've been to meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. And we feel comfortable after we leave because we was at a meeting about a book written by a guy who's trying to save his son from racism. The only way we're going to do it is from now on. When you're in a meeting somewhere and you see something going wrong, as a citizen, you raise your hand and you say, I don't think that's right. Because we got $7 billion going over here, and in this community, everybody is dying. When I was in the first grade, the NAACP taught us in the first grade Robert's Rules of Order. I'm six years old, and the teacher also says that we need a president, a vice president, a secretary, and we need a parliamentarian. If you don't know what those jobs are, or if you're not willing to work and decide what they are, don't raise your hand. Because we don't care who your mother or father is. We don't care how cute you think you are. We need people who can solve problems. Before urban renewal, we had money floating around in our community. We had power floating around in our community. We had love in our community, and it got destroyed. The point I'm making is that all of these things are not accidents. They are deliberate. And as I said again, the only way we're going to be able to solve this is to be and also to correct people when they say something in your presence that you know is wrong. Thank you. No, it's powerful. No, I just want to say thank you. Those are, those are wise words. So, so make a commitment to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, hi, Chris. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was Classism, right? So we, we're talking about racism in a, in a way that it's real easy to see, right? You're a black guy, you're a white guy. But I don't know how, what kind of class you guys fit in. It has to be a way where we can also address class in this community because what I believe Martin Luther King got killed for wasn't because he was black, because he was bringing poor white people and poor black people together to have a common ground to actually start talking about this is classism. We have separated a, a portion of our community that makes perfectly sense for the oppressor. And the oppressor didn't just oppress uh, black people. He oppressed poor white people by saying, look, you are at least better than them. Right. So you created the trailer parks and the projects, the same people, but they hate each other. So if we could just address a little bit of classism along with this process, that might help us clarify some of these issues. Go ahead, address it. 
Look, I, I, I think that's, I think that's, I, I don't know if I can address it, but I think that needs to be a part of the conversation. You know, that definitely needs to be a part of the conversation because I hadn't, I hadn't thought on that perspective. I appreciate you, Stanford, you know, opening that door for us. I think, is our time running out? It is. Okay, I'm sorry. Come on, Dean. All right, go ahead. I, I wanted to add on to that. Um, in my experience, I know a whole lot of white people that think they're not racist as long as the black person is of their class, as long as they are educated like them, have money like them, have similar interests, or maybe are white blacks or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of the flip side of that coin. Okay. Thank you. Thank you all for coming out. Um, really appreciate what the library does. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.